When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary? Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. This installment features monologist Mike Daisy. The last of the people I asked when I was putting this together was Mike Daisy, who, as you know and who, you, as you'll see in a second, is one of our great monologists. And the question I asked him is what it would be like for a monologist to be in solitary. And uh, so here is Mike Daisy, perhaps with an answer. Good afternoon. I I found this a very intriguing question, the question of what would happen in solitary. It's been really interesting. I've been here for pretty much all of the day listening to people's sort of hypothetical constructions of what, what they might do. And what interests me is it's a rigged game, which is great because there's lots of rigged games in the world. So it's always instructive to engage in one wholeheartedly. It's a rigged game. We all know that. We all know how this is going to go because it was outlined in the program because we all have a sense of what is to come. But the people who follow me are going to have a much more intimate sense of what it actually means to be solitary. So in a sense, this is all pointless. But that actually makes it a very effective way of simulating being in solitary, I would think, because the feeling of hopelessness, the knowledge that what you are doing is pointless is actually implicit in everything that's happening, right? So... (laughs) What fascinates me is, so I watch the day, and I work extemporaneously, so I had a rough idea of what I thought I might talk about, but I didn't really. I was mostly sort of tabula rasa. And I was watching people talk, and you know, a large number of the people who are very uh, sharp, smart, learned, excellent people, I'm sure, but their systems and methodologies are often built around suppositions that are, frankly, crazy because we're not going to have anything. You're not going to have anything outside yourself. We're not going to have any of these devices. Like we don't even know if we'll have a dollar bill or a bit of chewing gum. We can hope, but making a plan now for what we'll do if we should be so lucky is to have a dollar bill and a bit of chewing gum. I mean, this is a future where those things will be what is devoutly to be wished that we had those fucking things. More likely is we will not have those things. We'll have the things we didn't expect, like a jailer who interrupts solitary to kick you in the head or uh, your fecal matter. We'll have things like that is what we'll have if we're lucky. They may even take the fecal matter away from us immediately. I don't even know yet. I'm going to find out in a little while, just like the rest of you. So... One of the things that's clarifying for me is that I am able, because of the terms of this question, I'm able to unbind myself to some degree, insofar as any of us can, from ego. Because 
I'm a monologist and I work extemporaneously. I work exactly as you are hearing me work right now. I speak with and connect with audiences. I try to gather them together even when the lighting is shitty and the room is, I try to gather the energy together and talk about what's going on. That's an anthropological process that requires by its nature other people. It's not just not possible in solitary. It literally does not exist. I don't rehearse it. There is nothing. There's no there there, which in a sense frees me to actually wrestle with the core of the problem. Like, what would I actually do? I have the tools for this useless art form. And I think most of the artists and other thinkers today would be in a similar position where the tools would seem to be useful, but then prove to be pointless. And what do you do walking into that situation? I grew up in far northern Maine, and I was a lonely misanthropic child. And I was a misanthrope because I was essentially a hateful child. I was like a little Andy Rooney. You know, I just was very, I just did not like other people. I complained constantly about the nature of things. And from a very young age, like we're talking third, fourth grade, at a time when more normal children are cavorting and I I don't know what they're doing because I wasn't looking at them because I was this very inward-looking misanthrope in northern Maine, a very cold and desolate place, the kind of environment where it is winter 11 months of the year and then one month is fly season. (laughs) In that environment, my mother, I remember this so vividly, my mother would tell me to go outside and she'd be like, to play. And she'd make me go out and play. And of course, we lived in this remote rural area, so there were no neighbors, you know, and it'd be like three or four miles one way, the next house. So you just go out and just sort of sit in a snowbank in the great... (laughs) Bikettian whiteness all around you, the complete absence, and just wait for the time to pass when you'd be allowed to go back inside. (laughs) And so I think a large amount of why I'm a storyteller now is because I'm fundamentally, uh, you know, spiritually deformed in this way. Like, fundamentally, that period of my life caused me from an early age to really enshrine the idea, not just of telling stories, but of crafting entire universes in my mind. Like I would spend an inordinate amount of time, and by inordinate I mean all of it. I would spend all of my time building complex, fantastical structures, often that were um, pulled completely from fantasy, and they would be, you know, wild imaginings of pulp science and fiction, incredibly derivative at times, and other times shockingly original. Now that I look back on them, they'd be sitting right side by side. So I had no qualms because I was so young. I had not developed taste yet, that terrible affliction that hurts every artist. I didn't have taste yet. And so I was perfectly happy to have my own version of Jedi before uh, George Lucas came back and ruined them for everyone. My own version of what those early movies might have looked like in my own made-up mind sitting side by side with a world filled with people who have no faces who wear these masks. I remember this so vividly. They have a series of masks, and each mask is an expression, and they carry them with them in packs on their back when they march up through the woods. And those fantasies would sit right next to each other, even though one is arguably, oh, that's somewhat interesting. Let's talk about that and what it means about you and your psychology. And the other is just a derivative of a movie that had influenced me very deeply, but I didn't make any distinctions between them because the um, imagination, when it's hungry, feeds on everything that's around it. So, I was an unhappy child and uh, fundamentally an imaginative child feeling he was trapped in this bubble universe. I also, 
at a young age, younger than this, was a weird child. Like, I was very clearly one of those children that you would drown. Like, in another age, we would drown this child, you know. And we don't do that anymore. And sometimes I think, it worked out for me, but I don't know fundamentally. Maybe we should still be drowning people like this. Like, maybe there's a reason we feel that compulsion where we want to kill them, except apparently for our parents who feel like they want to love the child, no matter how misanthropic it is. Or, or so I'm assured, although some of you here are probably parents and probably secretly would assure me that you too wanted to drown your child. You're just not allowed to speak of it. But as a young, young child, I didn't speak. I didn't speak for a really long time. I'm not good with childhood development. Like, I'm not good at remembering what the correct age it is to speak, but I was well beyond that. And in fact, to the point where, you know, my mother, who's really not uh, book-learned in any way, even she was like, he should be talking by now. And I was, I was the oldest, so I was the first one that you make all the mistakes with. So they had no guideline to go by, and they, they took me in to see, you know, if I was mentally defective in some way. No one could figure anything out, and I didn't seem to be uh, defective. I just simply wasn't talking. And then when I did speak, when I did finally start talking, I'm told that I began speaking in, in complete sentences. And now, obviously, that disease has gotten worse, and I speak in complete paragraphs. But you, you understand what I'm saying. And then as I grew, I was always this large, strange-looking creature, uh, large, round, and especially in high school and early college, I had a huge number of physical traits that were outside the norm. I uh, engaged in an inordinate amount of physical repetitive motion. Like this thing I'm doing right now with my right hand, I can do this for hours. And I find it really soothing. Like I really enjoy the feeling of each pad of the finger coming down on my thumb. And I can feel the difference between one finger and the other finger and the rhythm. And if it changes, I can feel that. And I, I, I enjoy it in a way that is entirely pre-verbal. That is not built out of words you know, words, those pathetic betrayers, which if you are in a cell, are worthless. There's no point to your words. You cannot write them down. And there is no one to communicate with. The universe has shrunk down to this box. There's nowhere for the words to go. The words are an illusion, like they always fucking were. You're not actually going to be able to speak to anyone. You're not actually going to be able to get a word out. And there is no one to speak with because you are there. You are the generator of the words. If there is no one to speak to, if there is no audience, there is no point to speaking. So, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't be speaking. I would be doing this a lot. I'd be patting my arm in this particular way. When I was young, I used to do this a lot. A lot. Oh my God, it's still so soothing. Like when I do it now, I trained myself out of my freshman year of college because uh, someone who's now a professor of theater at, a, at a, another college told me on first meeting me, he met me in, um, in theater class and I was sitting in the corner. And remember, I'm a large man, right? So we have certain stereotypes about that. I have a large man, I'm sitting on the floor of the theater lab. I'm rocking back and forth as I was prone to do. Like, I rock uncontrollably if I'm not thinking about it. And I have a pencil in my hand, and I'm flicking it back and forth in my left hand, and I'm doing this. <laughs> it's theater, so perhaps I am exaggerating slightly the scale, but I swear to you, I think I am only exaggerating slightly. It was really extreme, like how much, because the, the pleasure of it is so internal that it's... it's um, well, it's better than masturbating, frankly, and you can do it in public, and people, for a while, don't tell you to stop. <laughs> 
And that's sort of the problem. Is it gives, there's no social stigma directly against it. And my friend let me know that he thought, he thought he was like, oh, it's a room full of people. This is like maybe a, a mentally challenged person who's, who's been invited to sit in or maybe, maybe we're going to be studying him to emulate him in exercises later. What I'm saying is if I was younger, if I'd been born in a different age, an age we live in now, I don't really fully doubt that I would have been medicated. I would have been medicated at an early age because I think when I read articles based on knowing very little, but based on what I see, I think I would fall somewhere on what they call that, that spectrum of autism. I think I would fall somewhere on that spectrum, and I think I would be medicated to remove these symptoms, but I would not have any such medication in solitary. And that's a gift because those movements those physical parts of me. That body is the only thing I can be assured is coming into the room with me. My words are not coming because there's no one to speak to. My mind is coming, but purely as meat baggage in my skull. But my body is physically there. The physical kinesthetic sensations are physically there. I am physically present. And so the truth is, in that room, my art would avail me nothing and I would probably engage in elaborate fantasies that are pre-verbal, even more primitive over time than the ones I did as a child in those snowbanks, because that was a different world. I could turn my head and see different things in every direction. This would be a smaller world, and in that smaller world, I would move again and again and again, and that would soothe me, and I would craft my own door, you know, Ursula Le Guin, who I think is one of the really important uh, writers, especially in fantasy over the last 50 or 60 years, she wrote this trilogy of books, this Earthsea trilogy, about a world full of wizards and princes and such. It's also an elaborate metaphor, the books. And in the third book, a crack, people open a crack in the world and all the magic of the world starts pouring out. And the deal is that it's the people who practice the magic itself, the wizards, sort of that world's equivalent of the writers and thinkers and the kind of people who've been speaking today, including myself, make a deal with that crack. And the deal is they give up their magic, but in return, they can live forever. And if they are allowed to do that, then they can stay in this world forever. Because on the other side of that crack is death. And in return for immortality, they give up all their gifts and what they do not understand and come to accept through the course of the book is that the crack is a delusion because the ability to live forever is unnatural. To stay in the world is a terrible mistake. We have to pass on. And on the other side of the crack is death. But the only way to pass into death is to give up yourself entirely. And for me, that is what would happen in um, solitary. I would cease. I would cease because I would have to let go of the ego attachment to the idea that I know who I am. I would never come out the same person. I don't know that anyone here would. And it's a very Western but understandable idea that we can cling to who we are, that we know ourselves so well, that we're the same person we were yesterday and yesterday and yesterday. But it is not true. We've already heard how memory shifts and bends. We already know that everything we make is reconstructions. We reforge the story of our lives over and over again. I would have to let go of that. I would sit in the room and I would rock 
and I would touch my arms, I would stroke my hair, I would wait until time itself had passed away. And when it was over, if indeed it ever was over, someone else would walk out of that room. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. This episode was produced by Micah Hazel. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.